Hi, everybody. It's Bean wishing you a happy Weedness Day and welcoming you to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Quick programming note, Abdullah is still on, say it with me, hiatus, working on a say it with me high-profile project, but he sends his say it with me highest regards to one and all. That was a lot even for me. Anyway, I am absolutely thrilled this weed to share with you this never-before-heard interview with Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson that I've pulled from my personal secret audio stash. Rush is, of course, one of the most popular rock bands of all time, with 14 platinum and three multi-platinum albums in the U.S., plus another 17 platinum albums in their home country of Canada. Our guest today, Alex, co-founded the band in 1968. He quickly added his high school friend, Getty Lee, and eventually they assembled the classic Rush power trio with the addition of drummer Neil Peart. I first had the pleasure of interviewing and getting pretty darn lit with Alex for High Times back in 2012, 10 years ago, and we've really kept in touch over the years. He is uh, among, you know, more than a handful of very accomplished and even well-known, or would you say, famous artists who I have had a chance to sit down and talk about cannabis and creativity with over many years. But I do like to think that he and I really did hit it off in a way that really doesn't happen that much between journalists and the people they interview. Spoiler alert, Pretty big part of that is because Alex, like us all here, really, truly does love weed. As you'll hear him say in the interview, he started getting high as a teenager in the 1960s and never looked back. Going back myself and re-listening to and editing this old recording from about five years ago, I was actually reminded of a much more recent Great Moments in Weed history interview that we did with David Crosby, which you can now yourself go back and listen to in the podcast feed. Both of these musicians and iconic guitarists had a huge impact on the rock music scene. Both of them continue to write and record new music today. And most importantly, for our purposes here, both of them love the cannabis plant and even more importantly, have actually smoked their way through half a century of its history. So, you know, we talk about everything from the original tie sticks to the first honey oil or butane hash oil, if you will, to come on the market. Alex remembers all of these classic iterations of cannabis coming across his palate as somebody who grew up loving weed and then was able to travel the world as a musician. So he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the plant. And we just had a great time uh, over the years getting high and sharing some stories. I have to thank our mutual friends, the Trailer Park Boys, for putting us in touch, for making that first interview happen. And, you know, also for putting 
out one of my favorite television shows of all time. Welcome to the Prince Elliot. I'm Alex, licensed personal guitar tech. I'm gonna take this to his room right away. Can I have the key, please? Most rock stars are supposed to be really approachable and really fun and easy to talk to, but for some reason, Alex wasn't. I need four tickets to your concert right now. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. Look, look I'm not a ticket agency. I'm sorry, I can't do help you with the tickets. You can't give me four tickets to your concert. I'm sorry, you can't. It's just one of these guys that, hey, I don't want to talk to anybody, and I'm a big fancy rock star, and you can't talk to me, so it pissed me off. Hang on a second, man. Hang on. Let's go. No fucking around here. Say a word with this. I'm going to tell everyone you sexually assault me. Cops Come here. on, right. give me a break. Come with me. Just take it easy. Just going to go for a little drive. So tell security this man's drunk as fuck. He's uh, on drugs. Going? Just going to take him out. He's drunk as hell. He's going to go. Guitar tech. You told me he's yours. They started out as a homegrown show on Canadian television. They've uh, since achieved certainly cult status in the United States among weed smokers. And same thing, I had a chance to interview them back in the day for High Times, go up to the trailer park and actually am credited in an episode in season seven as Greasy Stoner number one. So for you Trailer Park Boys fans, keep an eye out for my uh, very, very brief, I couldn't exactly call it a cameo, but uh, I, you know, I'm in an establishing shot smoking some weed. And if you want to hear more about my experience uh, interviewing the Trailer Park Boys, getting to be in the show, and hanging out behind the scenes with them while they shot an episode called Three Good Men Are Dead, I will talk all about that in next Weed's Secret Sesh, which is, of course, available only to our wonderful supporters on Patreon. Important point. We are still a Weedly podcast, or more literally, a weekly podcast. We put out a new episode every single Weedness day, but to get them all, you've got to support us on Patreon. Every other week, we're right here on the podcast feed with a classic Great Moments in Weed History episode, but on the off weeds, off weeks, every other weed, I am putting out a Secret Stash episode just for our Patreon supporters. You can join us by going to Great Moments in Weed History. You can put as little as a dollar on it. That will get you the video version of these podcasts. You'll see me waving at you. You'll see me uh, holding up the joint I'm going to light right before we start the interview. And you can help us put out this podcast, help us preserve cannabis history, help us share these amazing stories and interviews with the rest of the world, all by visiting greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You could put five on it if you really, really want to get behind the show. And for a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot, properly mailed directly to you. And please order now if you want to get one in time for the holidays. I'm happy to make it out to your friend as a gift. And if you don't have the ducats, as Abdullah is fond of saying right now, please 
do us a solid and let your friends know about this podcast. Tell them about a favorite episode of Great Moments in Weed History you think they will appreciate and invite them to come get high on history with us. Now, One of the really fun topics, aside from the Trailer Park Boys, that we discuss in this interview is Rush's own song about cannabis, which is called Passage to Bangkok. It was recorded 45 years ago for their stonerific, futuristic concept album 2112, and the song describes an imagined journey through the world's oldest cannabis cultures while collecting samples of the finest flowers and hashish all along the way. So, needless to say, Alex Lifeson shares our love of getting high on history. And best of all, digging up this interview actually inspired me to drop him a line for the first time in a little while. We had a chance to catch up, and I'm really pleased to report that Alex is doing very well. And while Rush has ceased to exist since the tragic passing of Neil Peart a couple of years ago, Alex is still out making new music, getting high, and, you know, apparently fondly, fondly recalling some Kyle Cushman weed that I shared with him 10 years ago. Uh, So, you know, naturally, I rolled up some strawberry cough that Kyle himself gifted me the last time I saw him to commemorate this very, very auspicious occasion. This is an interview that I know fans of this podcast who are also fans of Rush are going to absolutely love, but everyone else really should give it a listen to. Alex is one of the really sweetest people I've ever come across for somebody who has played to huge audiences all over the world, sold tens of millions of records, and uh, is literally in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's incredibly down-to-earth, super, super kind person. He describes, you know, his earliest encounters with it as a teenager smoking weed and rocking out in the basement with his high school friend Getty Lee with no idea uh, how far this musical journey was about to take them all the way up till now more than five decades into that illustrious career playing the guitar when he uses it to treat his arthritis so it's a wild journey it's a beautiful story it's a good hang and uh i'm ready to get lit and get into it but if you dear listener are not rolled up and ready that's cool man or 
woman or non-binary weed aficionado. No stress. All you have to do is hit pause and use that time at your own discretion to roll yourself up a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to indabulate a dab to its indabtastical optimal essence of dabulation or, you know, eat a bunch of edibles, or maybe just have a nice cup of strong tea, whatever it takes to get you where you want to be. And as always, we will promise you that when you are ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. You know, there's a whole chapter in my book about cannabis and creativity. There's a lot of people, you know, who've enjoyed the creative output of Rush for years and you know, appreciate all that you've brought into the world. So maybe you can walk people through some of the ways you use it as a creative tool and maybe some of the pitfalls you see in that. I think that cannabis is, it is a wonderful agent for creativity. I find implementation is probably a little better when I'm a little more focused, just a little straighter. I seem to just play better. <laughs> so I'll put it down to that. But it's not quite as much fun. I come up with ideas that I may not normally uh, think of going to places that, that I wouldn't in terms of, of tuning and composition and structure and things like that. So uh, I find it's a really great, great aid. And cannabis today is so refined that you can be very selective about what you intend to use. For example, I like uh, a sativa that's around 14 to 18% THC for daytime for working. It's terrific. Uh, at night, I like some, I like something a little stronger indica, maybe up in the higher twenties for sleep and for therapeutic use. And I find with my, particularly with my psoriatic arthritis and a little bit of insomnia that I have, that it's, it's very, very useful on a nightly basis. Is it something where, uh, you might have some cannabis and then feel that creative spark or that you feel the creative spark and and bring cannabis uh, in later in the process? I think these kind of go hand in hand, really. I have to admit that I, I probably smoke most times I'm sitting down to do some work. Uh, I just find that it's a nice, it's a nice atmosphere. It's a nice environment uh, for working, for, for particularly for, for music. You know, I, I also enjoy it for painting. Um, I'm, I'm not as qualified a painter, I think. So it's always a little uh, a bit of a mystery what I'm doing. But I find a little cannabis can be, again, uh, very uh, conducive to, to just being creative and looking in areas that you normally wouldn't. I think all in all that I'm probably a better performer when I don't smoke. Uh, in fact, on tour, I... 
you know, in the early days, it was a different story, but certainly for the last couple of decades, uh, I, I, I don't think I could possibly, um, be high during a show. Uh, I really need to have my wits about me and we're all the same in, in that regard. Um, and to not to deliver to your audience a hundred percent of the performance is, uh, really letting them down. So I never let anything get in the way, you know, didn't drink nothing, um, until after the show. But it sounds like the early days might've had a different, uh, well, times were different. You know, we were, we were a younger band. When I say the early days, I mean the days where we were uh, opening up for other bands or special guesting. The demands were different. The, the, the demands of the material was different. You didn't, you weren't quite so busy. You could just get up and rock and jump around and have a good time. As things progressed, it became much more complicated. Uh, so you really had to be aware of where you were at all times. I, I remember smoking a little bit before um, a rehearsal that we had one time. And I thought, you know, it was a week of rehearsals and we knew the material. And I thought, oh, this would be kind of fun. Get a little a, a little high and, and uh, play and, you know, be up on the stage without any kind of consequence. And uh, boy, it was a panic situation. I, I was forgetting parts and I got nervous. And it really wasn't that pleasant of uh, an experience. So uh, that taught me a lesson that I really do need to be very focused and, and quite straight for performance. And at, at that at that point, did other did other people know about your experiment, or were was there an element of everybody's <laughs> going to find out? No, some people knew. The people that I sat in the production office with and smoked the joint knew, <laughs> but um, you know, my fellow players, uh, I don't think knew. They knew something was up when I was missing parts. Would you say cannabis was something that was around a lot at the at the formative stage of the of the band? Do you think it played a role in in creating uh, what Rush became in a way? Oh, I don't know if I would go that far. It was definitely around, and we were, you know, casual with it. But there were times where you know we didn't. So. It, to really give it too much emphasis is is probably inaccurate. Certainly at the end of the day, it was probably most enjoyable to sit back and listen to your work and what you've done and um, and just vibe. Uh, that was really always a very special time. <laughs> I kind of started, I smoked my first joint when I was 13 and um, kind of never really looked back. Do you have any perspective or idea of you know, what you were smoking in the 60s? Primarily, the pot was coming from uh, Mexico back in those days. Occasionally, Jamaica. The hash that was coming through Europe, I think, mostly, that was the predominant thing. That's that's probably what we smoked more than than anything. It seemed to be more readily available than than good pot. And then sort of later in the mid-70s, hash oil was, was the big thing. That honey oil, particularly. Really? Wow, because obviously that's that's quite popular now, but it seems like there was a long gap where it wasn't uh, much on the market. Do you remember the first time you encountered hash oil? I think uh, I think it was probably early 70s, 71 or 72, that I first smoked hash oil, and it was a very dark and heavy oil. We smeared on a cigarette paper and then rolled some tobacco in it. Um, later on in the, 
I, w- I think it was probably the mid 70s, 75 or so, uh, hash oil arrived, or I'm sorry, um, the honey oil arrived. And, and that was quite potent, smelled beautiful, uh, and was really a lot of fun. <laughs> How's that for an analysis? <laughs> That's perfect. And do you, do you remember, did, did it seem to go away at a certain point? Um, be- it was rare to start with. Um, and so was money <laughs> at, at the time. So you're, you know, when you had a chance, you got what you could get and, and used it sparingly. Um, but I, I do recall, uh, because it was so rare and because it was, you know, t- so good that it was very, very popular and couldn't get enough of it. And then as, as you got, as you gained, uh, notoriety as a, as a band, uh, I'm sure some fans have shown you some kindness over the years. Has, have you ever gotten a particularly memorable, uh, you don't have to, uh, name the person, but, is is that something that uh, people have gifted you over the years? I do remember somebody giving us a gift of this can of... I can't remember what it was, but it was from Hawaii in a can. And it was actually the the first Hawaiian pot that I ever smoked. And I do recall that we opened the can and the whole room just reeked of this incredible scent. And it was very, very in- intensely high. We got really, really... Buzzed at it. I can actually picture it being in the dressing room at a gig. I can't remember the gig, but I can visualize the dressing room where we rolled this very, very skin joint and, and smoked it. And uh, we're so impressed by how powerful it was. And that was around the time that tie sticks were showing up more often and uh, and much higher quality of pot was being grown in in California. Um, that was a real turning point, I think. That would have been probably the late seventies. And when when was the era when you when when you guys uh, wrote and recorded "Passage to Bangkok"? Is that around the same time? Well, that was forty years ago. That was on twenty one twelve, and that album is celebrating its fortieth anniversary this year. Wow do do you have uh, specific memories of uh, of how that song came together? I do recall that we wanted to have some fun with the song, uh, with the lyrical content. And Neil started writing those lyrics and they just all flowed and we just got so into it. And it was so much fun to have, you know, to be a little more, um, I don't know, flowery, (laughs) so to speak. With uh, with the way he presented all those moments in this grand uh, adventure. Oh, and and are are some of those experiences derived in the song uh, from you guys' personal experience, or was it more of a fantasy of of? Well, I th- I think it was probably all based on experience. Some fantasy, yeah, some great desire for you know temple balls or <laughs> or a great cashmere hash. But um, I would say that most fits from experience, yeah. Here in California, we have third and, and, and sometimes even fourth generation growers up in Humboldt and up in, in what we call the Emerald Triangle and really throughout the state. And one of the things people are, are really trying to look to 
these smaller family farmers is perhaps we can be like a boutique winery. And you obviously have a, a lot of experience with both cannabis and wine. Is, is it true in your estimation that, that, that a smaller, more boutique uh, winery can produce a better product? And, and do you see that as a, as a workable model for some of these people who are, are not ready to scale up to compete with corporate cannabis, but might say, well, we can, we can follow this uh, boutique winery model? Well, it certainly works in the wine industry. Quite often, those little boutique wineries do make the best or most unique products. Uh, and I, I don't see why it wouldn't work for cannabis. Um, I've been fortunate to have friends that, uh, that have worked for great wineries in California, Turley's, for example, and uh, uh, Fela. And I've had the opportunity to actually work and through all the different stages of production from going out to the uh, vineyards with the winemaker to bottling. You know, I've I've had the opportunity to to do all that stuff. So it's a fantastic experience. And it's great to just travel from winery to winery, just seeing how they do things, the, the differences in character of the same, essentially the same grape from one winery to the next and how they develop it. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and so broad in scale, um, certainly for cannabis. And, you know, yeah, we don't really, I wouldn't want to lose that sense of community, I think, that exists in the cannabis community. And it's, and that's changed. I mean, I think a lot of us older, um, smokers have that, you know, that, that thing about us that re- that goes back where we were part of a we felt like we were part of a movement, but we're a lot older now, and there's a whole different generation of smokers that look at it quite differently. I don't think they look at it in those kind of groovy hippie terms. It's uh, it's a much more I don't know, not colder, but just less romantic kind of approach to it. Well, there's something of the outlaw spirit. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it'd be one of the things I talk about in in the book is 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 wanting to maintain those underground values, but just not get arrested anymore. Yeah, and I really think as people who are invested in this culture, it's important to do that. One one of the things I would say is, you know, I, I'd ask you is, you must have seen that spirit change a lot when it comes to the rock music scene in a in a similar way obviously it was never illegal to play rock music in canada or the united states but it was opposed and it was uh you know had that same outlaw spirit have have, do you feel that rock music has changed in that way and 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 are there lessons from that 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 weed culture can look to i was thinking about this the other day in fact uh, just watching TV and you hear all these classic rock songs and, and even more current rock music. It's like our generation grew up to be the advertisers and the jingle writers and, uh, and, and that whole area. And we brought our musical taste with us and, you know, you'd never heard rock music on a commercial back in the old, in, well, not the old days, but, well, I guess they are the old days, the <laughs> 70s. And, 
Um, but now you, it, it's it's everywhere, and the whole industry has changed so much. Um, technology has changed music and how we listen to it and how it's delivered, and uh, it's, 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 so it really I don't know. It has very little to do with the way it was. I mean, and that's normal, and that's probably the right way. You know, everything progresses, um, and as we get older, we kind of lament the passing of time and the purity of an experience that we remembered from our youth uh, and things change. Um, and I, I don't see that it would be any different with cannabis or, f- or with rock music for that matter. The whole picture or, or the, the whole uh, idea of music and, and how we absorb it is really quite different in the last 15 or 20 years than it used to be. And certainly we've come so far with cannabis from sneaking around, you know, in the back of a shopping plaza, uh, behind a leaning behind a truck or something to take a couple of hits to, you know, going to your shop and, and picking your, your five favorite varieties to take home from the weekend. It'll be fascinating to see what sort of impact broader legalization has on, on the population. That's, that's a really interesting uh, concept. If people can can laugh and talk about their differences this way, then it's going to make it a lot easier to deal with more serious issues in a more, I don't know, in a more mature way, I suppose, a more balanced way. At least that's what I hope. Because right now it's, it's ugly. Another aspect of that, too, is beyond the personal. I think we push people to socialize around alcohol, and, and I enjoy alcohol, and, and I don't personally have uh, problems with it in my life, and, and I know that you and obviously enjoy wine, but to make that the de facto um, substance around which we organize all of our uh, social interactions, I have a friend who likes to say, uh, you celebrate a birth, you celebrate, uh, you mourn a death, uh, a wedding, everything in between. If you are a part of that alcohol culture, it's so pervasive, you don't always even realize. Uh, and so I think allowing this, um, let me ask, in your experience, is there a different quality to social interaction when it's um, around cannabis versus around alcohol? Well, for sure. Um, I, I think the reaction is, is quite different. I mean, we all know that alcohol can, can, can be a real strong fuel for ag- aggressiveness, just a, I don't know, a, a looser sensibility in things, whereas it seems to be the, the opposite. I mean, you get in a car, you drive fast when you've had a few drinks. You get in a car, you drive slow when you've had a few hits. Uh, they're, they're such different things. I don't know if you can even compare them. They, they might be, uh, you know, a, a component of our relaxation, but they affect us in, in such different ways. Um, cannabis can be so much more introspective. It can be so much more settled and soft and, and easy. I don't know anybody who gets aggressive after they've, they've smoked pot, but, on the other side, alcohol can very easily slip into the uncontrolled zone 
uh, or anger or or aggression. I, I I don't really find much of a comparison between the two. Although, you know, I think a lot of non-smokers will make that that comparison. That it's just another way of getting out of your head. And then, of course, there's the the medicinal aspect of it, um, which I wanted to return to. And and you know, are you are you open to talking about sort of your own medicinal use and 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 how you found it useful in that way? I absolutely find it useful for my particular aches and pains. I've had psoriatic arthritis, I don't know, for about a dozen years now. I'm on a medication and it works well for me. And really what we've, what I've done with my rheumatologist is come up with a plan that helps me to just hold off the effects of arthritis. There's no cure. So if I can just buy time before it gets worse, then that's the best I can do. And so far I'm doing great. But I have to say that with cannabis, for those aches and pains, it is really remarkable to me how effective it can be for for that type of pain. I It's not complete, obviously. It's not 100%. But it's maybe 60%. And that's a lot when you're feeling really sore and achy all the time. I find I've, is, I've had issues for a long time with my stomach. And as soon as I have uh, a single puff, it settles my stomach completely. I mean, I really use it for, for <laughs> I'm not just trying to get high. I really use it as a, as a therapy. And it's very effective for me. And I think when we when when you look at sixty percent of uh, your pain being reduced, and then you look and you compare the uh, safety and potential side effects of of cannabis as a medicine to other medicines, uh, pharmaceuticals that you might take, you know, there must be a big advantage there as well. There absolutely is. I mean, I. Uh... I, I had um, an operation, and I was given a lot of s- strong uh, narcotic painkillers. And I was taking them, but I can't say that they were really effective. Maybe the particular pain I was experiencing post-operation was, was intense enough that uh, you had to take really high doses. And after a while, I just I basically stopped taking them or I really, really reduced the amount I was taking, and I was smoking more. And I found that I I was much better off having a couple of hits every couple of hours than taking a couple of Percocets every few hours, or hydrocodone, or whatever it was that I was taking. And I've been sort of doing that whenever I have issues where I I have to take stronger painkillers. They sit on my in my uh, medicine cabinet, unopened. And I, I love that idea that I don't have to go to that, that stuff if I, don't, if I don't choose to, or I don't need to, that cannabis can be effective enough. I, I have a friend who has, uh, has cancer. He, he was diagnosed with um, prostate cancer, and, it, and it's spread to, to some other areas. And he's been on uh, 
the oil therapy, and his tumors have gone into remission since he started the program about six or seven weeks ago. And his doctors are very pleased, and it's a very serious type of cancer that he has. And I'm not saying that this is the, uh, this is a uh, going to be a cure for him, but something has happened. Something very, very positive has happened. And will this lead to you know a longer duration of remission for him? That's what he's hoping. And and this evidence leans towards it with the the kind of response that that he's been having to the high CBD oil that he's taking. So there's definitely something seriously in cannabis that is medicinally therapeutic. And we just need to learn more about it. I mean, finally, I, I think it's becoming a little more open to research and, uh, and, and gleaning a little more knowledge about the properties of, of THC and CBDs and, and all of those ingredients uh, in cannabis. I want to wrap up with a few fun questions, if uh, if that's cool. So um, without without outing anybody who, who might not be open about their uh, their cannabis use, I'm wondering if, you know, I'm sure you've just met so many people uh, in your journey as a musician. Who's Who's been really fun to share some cannabis with uh, in particular? <laughs> well, you know, the, the Jailer Park boys are just a riot to be with. Yeah. And uh, I had them up to our place. Um, the, the golf club that I belong to had its 10th anniversary this summer. And a few of us put on a, a concert. Tom Cochran played and I played and, uh, and some other uh, musical friends got up and played. And it was such a great event. There were about 500 people there and it was amazing. But those guys, the Trail Park Boys came up and they stayed at my place and we had a, a couple of days together. And we just had so much fun. They are a riot to be with. Uh, and they just <laughs> explode after you've had a couple of puffs. And and they are serious, serious, serious smokers. Yeah, I definitely, you know, when I went up to interview them for the first time, I had already seen a bunch of the show. I love the show. You know, but you never know. You know, you know, you never want to uh, assume that a uh, an actor is, uh, yeah, you know, the same as the role or whatever. But uh, and and obviously they're very different than the characters they portray. But I'd say the crossover point is that they are, uh, you know, they they certainly uh, kept up with me and more so uh, when it came to smoking <laughs> weed. So, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> what was the uh, what was the origin of all of that? How did how did you? Uh, how did you and, and and the Trailer Park Boys come to, to come to cross paths? Oh, I I became a fan of the the, the original show um, partway through the first season. We had some common friends uh, that worked either worked or knew somebody that worked on the show, and I mentioned to them in passing that I loved the show. I thought it was fantastic, the whole the premise of the show. But I loved how every episode ended with them really, you know, helping each other up. And that's what I really loved about the way they, they presented the show, this totally ridiculous environment, but they're all in there for each other. And, uh, you know, it's, we eventually got in touch and they said, you know, we'd love to have the band on an episode. Uh, I don't think Getty and Neil, you know, really got into the show but I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do something. And I was going to do a cameo. And then they decided to do a whole episode around 
uh, my kidnapping and, and all of that. And they are so funny. They're brilliant comic writers. That's, that's really a, a, a beloved episode of the show. I think if you probably polled Trailer Park Boys fans, that would be the most popular episode of the show. Was it, were, were you involved in, in, the, in, in conceiving that episode and the, and the plot line? Is it something they presented you with? Well, they have a great way of working. I went out and we would start in their writing studio and we would discuss this, um, the script, which was a sort of an outline script. There were lines in it, but the intention is to use it as a guideline and, and improvise a little bit around it. So typically we would do three takes. The first take would be fairly close to that script. The second would be a much looser interpretation. And the third take would be something completely different and particularly something, you know, crazy and, and, and wild. Uh, and that seemed to be the formula for the shoot. And I'd spent two days with them shooting all my scenes. Then they did all the rest of it uh, some months later. And when I saw it, I, I was, I was really impressed with, my recollection of what I had done on it and how they had weaved around it with the rest of the sh shooting and the rest of their concepts and ideas. It's really, they're really a lot of fun. I've, I've worked on a couple of, of their films with them and it's always the same experience. They're very, very open. They're, they, they want to bring the best out of you as well. So they're, they're, they're terrific guys to, to work with in that capacity. And what did you mostly find in the, in the finished episodes? The first take uh, the second or the third, a mix of them? There was a mix. I, I think we probably leaned more towards the second and third third takes. You know, you're kind of warming up with that first take. And you, you, you do a, a one take and somebody would say, you know what? When we come to this point, why don't we try this? You know, and it becomes a very, very much a, a, a group effort. So things would, would develop, you know, very, very quickly uh, on the storyline. I love the way they, they put it all together and how sweet it all is in the end when Bubbles comes up and we do the guitar change and then we play Closer to Heart together at the end. There's always a sweetness to their episodes that's, you know, that comes after this whole insanity for, for 25 minutes. And it's really sort of uh, surreal. I, I was on the, on the set, uh, which is really just sort of a, a, a pretend trailer park at this point, uh, it, it's pretty surreal to walk around that set, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, when I did that, we were actually in the trailer park. So they were using a trailer park. In fact, they filmed, I think, a few seasons at that trailer park before they got kicked out and had to go to a different trailer park. <laughs> oh, my God. How was that? It was, it was great. I mean, it was authentic. So we were running around and doing all these shots in the trailer park. So as it should be. And so that must have been before it was quite uh, such a sensation in Canada. Is that? That was, it was already a sensation here. That was the third season that I did that episode. Um, so I think they were already by then, they, they were, they were gods here. Well, I remember when I went out to, to Halifax to, to do that, we went out for dinner one night and they were, people were chasing them down the streets. Like they were so beloved and they are beloved in this country. And it's great to see that they're having this much broader appeal on uh, on Netflix. And uh, I bump into so many people now 
who say, oh, Trailer Park Boys, I love that show. Just got into it. You know, the show's been running for 12 or 13 years, I think. Yeah, we've we've been a lagging indicator in the U.S., but it's definitely, uh, you know, if you go to a cannabis cup now and, and, and you start asking people about the Trailer Park Boys, you know, within within that community, it's definitely a hit. Uh, it's not like Canada where they're nationally known figures, but the, the, the cult audience is very strong. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot about from the creative end of uh, cannabis and music, but maybe to wrap up just as a fan or, or, or somebody who is, is appreciating art or creativity, do you, how do you see cannabis playing a role in that? Again, I don't think it's a primary role that it plays. I think it's a little more secondary. You can enjoy it whenever you choose to or not. The experiences are different. I I think, uh, I don't know, I kind of like both at different times. I'm much more of a smoker than I used to be. Um, But at the same time, I'm less of a smoker. I smoke less, but more often. Uh, It's such a normal part of my life and i think it is the case with with many people and this is the new uh this is the new place that cannabis is going to that it is so much more a part of our everyday living it's not something that you just did on a friday night when you were a kid with your pals it is a way of life all right well i think i'm gonna i'm gonna conduct a little experiment once we wrap up i'm gonna uh roll something up i'm gonna Put on twenty one twelve, my Atta my boy. favorite, and uh, and I'll uh, I'll follow up with you on email, and I'll I'll let you know how uh, how they blend. But I, I it's it's I think it's an experiment that has been replicated successfully uh, all over the world uh, by people who love your music, and and so sort of on behalf of all of them, I'll say, you know, thank you for for everything beautiful you've brought into the world. Oh, thank you, David. I really appreciate that. That's very kind. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.